This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page, and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And the topic of today's episode is surprises. Particularly when you are 50% of a podcast hosting team and you surprise your co-host with the topic for this episode, which apparently I did because the nature of the pitch was that it involves a surprise of a certain sort, but I think it meant I was a little too coy when I was explaining to Eric what I, w- I wanted us to do. A little more <laughs> surprise than we had originally intended. <laughs> and if you listen to the end of our last episode, you got to experience that surprise in in the moment, if you will, as in it real took time, hold of Eric. We don't cut this. You hear it all. We're, warts and all, folks uncensored i was about to say live we're not live anymore it's uncensored unfiltered unrated tagged explicit on all your favorite podcast platforms that's tdps presents christopher and eric so i the idea that i had we have formal production meetings for tdps presents christopher and eric which is when we call each other on the phone and talk about what it is we want to do We do a regular installment here called Christopher and Eric's True Crime TV Club every other week, and this is not the week for us to do that. So in the alternate weeks, we come up with new and inventive ideas for how to say the same shit to each other that we say during our private phone calls, which we assume arrogantly that you all will be entertained by if we record them and post them as podcasts. So the idea was for us to do kind of a retrospective episode where this is episode 27 of the new podcast. Um... We wanted to look back over what we had done, but talk about it in a way that allowed us to maybe take a deeper dive than just saying, oh, I liked it when we said this or when we covered that or when we talked about that episode of True Crime TV Club. So what I pitched was the idea of the episodes that haunt us. However, I don't think I called it that when I pitched it to Eric. Otherwise, he would have maybe got a better and no, sooner idea of what I was talking th- about. I would not have thought that that was what we were doing. <laughs> So what did you think we were doing, Eric Sharquin? Well, I thought what you said was the episodes that affected us the most profoundly. And I was like, wow, okay, that's heavy. I'll have to give it some thought. But sure. And I guess haunting and most profound are kind of the same thing. But yeah, I didn't realize that you were talking about just the true crime TV club episodes. I thought you meant all the episodes, you know, to which obviously my first reaction is, oh, well, I, I've never heard, I've never listened to the show. I, I don't much care for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're all fine, but I'm not listening to this shit. Um, yeah. uh, I'm not a big fan of my own podcast. Yeah, I just don't particularly like it. Um, so yeah, that's obviously the first reaction I had. But then when I gave it some more thought, and, you know, like I've done the other, I've, now that I've gotten the correct assignment, I've done the correct assignment so we can do that as well. But I wanted, like, as I was looking back over the episodes, the one that really, that is kind of like more in my heart than the most in my heart is the first one. Hmm. Partly because we hadn't done it for a while. We had done the dinner party show we've done like 150 episodes or something Mm -hmm. of the dinner party show and we had enjoyed doing it and it was um but we were the thing that really touches me about it is that we were we actually recorded the first episode of this because our web designer and our um (laughs) our technical director needed something to work with 
to post, to edit, to, you know, they needed like a sample of what we were talking about doing so they could do it. So we didn't really have an agenda. It was really mm-hmm. just like us talking about it, which sounds like, oh, well, that seems sort of slapdash. And I guess it probably was when you really got come down to it. But the thing that really strikes me about that episode is that it is just about our friendship. Mm-hmm. You can hear it mm-hmm. when you listen to the first episode. It just it's just our friendship. It's that sort of the back and forth and the tease and the pestering and the fussing and the, you know, all of the, the, the nature of what is our friendship. And we don't have any really other agenda. We need to fill the time and we need to have a conversation that lasts for the amount of time. I think the segments are laid out differently. I don't even remember Mm -hmm. exactly how we did it, but it was, it was, it was completely off the cuff and totally experimental in how is this going to work again? And I've, I love doing this and I I like all the other episodes, despite what you may have heard um, me say with great conviction earlier. And, um, (laughs) Uh, maybe other times, um, when I'm tired and cross, but, um, mm-hmm. but I really loved the, the genuineness, the, the, the authenticity of that first episode. Cause it's really just Christopher and Eric talk for a few minutes on, uh, on tape, on digital, on, it's not on tape anymore. I always say that, but there really is no tape, but mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Anyway, I so that was, that was ultimately what I was going to talk about was the way that this show is really about our friendship and it's in whatever we do, but that that one when really wasn't about anything else. Yeah, that's very true. And I, as I've said a bunch, the reason I, I suggested we go back into the studio because we have our studio where we did the dinner party show for years and produced 150 mostly live episodes, I should say, which are available to download and stream at the dinnerpartyshow.com. But and they're they great. were such a different animal than this. They had celebrity interviews. They had uh, pre-recorded sketch comedy. They had a lot of elements to them that were not... The conversation part usually happened for five minutes at the top of the show, and then we would literally bring a guest into the studio and interview them while we played these sketches we had produced earlier in the week. So... I went down, two good friends invited me to, to a live recording of the podcast, My Favorite Murder, and I didn't really know much about it, but I was so taken with the fact that it was just these two people who were also good friends sitting on a stage talking about something that obsessed them, which was murder, true crime, uh, and that resulting conversations that, that spun out of that conversation for them had meaning for so many people. I just thought it was like, it was a moment that gave me permission to say let's just the two of us be us you know which is to be honest flies in the face of a lot of the podcast marketing advice that that is being given out right now which is your podcast has to be super specific the podcasts that do the best are the barbecuing podcasts because people know exactly what you're going to be talking about and they're going to uh you'll get sponsors who are into barbecuing and that's how it works and that's the magical formula and if you do that you'll be a success you know there's a lot of that out there but i find that the people who talk to me about the podcast that mean a lot to them and it ties into some many of the responses we've been getting about this new incarnation it's they want to feel like they were either part of an intimate conversation or just got to listen in on an intimate conversation between two real live human beings who are maybe. And I love the posts that are about that, that basically say I'm planning to be, you know, I'm looking forward to this conversation or including us in their life as you might invite friends over, you know, to have a chat at dinner or while you're doing something. I, I love that. I, I love, I love that it too. That. Yeah. People who feel comfortable just putting us on in the background so that they don't actually have to listen to every stupid, crazy thing we say. <laughs> no, that they don't say the second part, but they say the first part. <laughs> the is, second part may well be true. Yeah. Because the, also the funny thing, and, and this is like, you know, I, I don't mean, to, I don't mean to ruin the moment because I feel the same way. We are, we ourselves do not listen to a lot of podcasts that are like this one. If we're, we drive out for the holidays to see my mother out in the desert here in Southern California where she lives, and we, we rarely put on a podcast like this. We will put on the investigative four to six part. We want closure. We want an end. And so when it came to looking at other podcasts that were doing this, aside from My Favorite Murder, which is 
actually pretty topic focused. We were sort of it was a new horizon for us, you know, and, and there were we needed that permission that we got. I, I did, at least from those early comments, those early positive comments to say, this is an interesting thing. We want we want to tune in each week and hear what you guys have to say. But a lot of people did comment on the nature of our friendship, right? That they did say friendship goals. One person said to me uh, when oh, he listened to the yeah, first few episodes. That's lovely. Like that. So yeah, practicing self love, and the and the true crime TV club ab- actually came later. That was, um, I think, I think it was after we did those initial recordings. Um, I it, it occurred to me, and I called you and pitched it to you, but but we we had we didn't even have that much in mind. I will say that most of the podcasts we end up listening to uh, on the uh, you know when we're traveling are the. Um, well, when traveling together, I don't know what you listen to when you're on your own. Um, are true crime driven? Yeah, they are. They absolutely are. Like but even the, the Rachel Maddow one with um, Spiro Agnew was ultimately about crime. You know, right? That was Bagman. They're investigative journalism pieces, yeah. limited series, and often limited, not always. Yeah, but they are. I mean, there is. Um, I mean, we've even talked about how we want closure and what we listen to like dateline which is a show we talk about a lot on true crime tv club gives you closure more often than most and we have talked about how the differences um how stark the difference is between 2020 and dateline and 48 hours and dateline because 48 hours in 2020 will often do news as it's unfolding and so you get like a little piece of what you can tell is going to be a long multi-year story and maybe they'll check back in with it later right dateline more often than not is going to go for the big 30,000 foot view of the case. And they will almost inevitably have a trial involved, maybe two, sometimes two. So we are, um, I think we, the thing we have in common is we're more sort of closure driven, you know, like we want well, that. It, it, it It's, there is something palliative about that for me, you know, like I, like life doesn't offer much in the way of closure. Everything is open-ended all about everything. The, the nature, the, the uh, the secret to happiness in life is learning to live with unresolved situations, yeah, um, good yes. and bad, and because that's how most life is. You know, the, uh, there's only one big resolution in life, and after that, nothing really matters at all. So in the meantime, you have to live with an absence of resolution. And so having, I love that about true crime and true crime TV club, is uh, an outgrowth of that. Um, is that it offers you that kind of closure. I, I also love murder mysteries. I love that, you know, the, the puzzle is solved and that's the end. I love Perry Mason, you know, and mm-hmm. that's the verdict. And, you know, there it is. It's done. Over this past Christmas, uh, we were out visiting my mother and we were watching a mystery, a scripted mystery series called Death in Paradise. And this is going to sound glaringly obvious, but it was one of those moments where I experienced something that should have been obvious. And I realized that both you in particular, but, but also mom to a certain extent were watching the show as if it were a puzzle. Like at every moment you were trying to figure out the mystery. And obviously that's how we assume that we all watch mysteries. But when I watch them, I get distracted by the production design or the performance. My mind starts to wander. But the idea of of actively undertaking the viewing of it and that sort of I'm going to solve the puzzle way became like an evening activity that we did in front of the TV every time we watched these episodes of the show that I wasn't completely blown away by, to be frank. But it was solved in the course of an hour. It was not a serial. It was not an ongoing right. serialized got, story. And so you got to either guess right or wrong. You either figured it out or you didn't figure it out. Although I always usually figure it out. Yeah. I saw a tweet the other day that said, I wish I could credit it. And it's probably a quote stolen from somebody else. But the premise of basically everything ever written is things are not what they appear. Or things are not how they appear. Excuse me. <laughs> And it's right? like nothing embodies that more than the, the mystery, but also the, the true crime story. I, I really think that is the appeal. The idea is that we're going to peel back the surface. We're going to look at what's underneath and we're going to try to survive. And we're also going to try to gather some moral lessons from what we're looking at. I've always said that the true crime phenomenon is is religion for secular people. It is how those of us who are not highly religious uh, look to examples, both good and bad, in the culture of dealing with the most difficult and disturbing circumstances that that we can encounter. 
and and so aside from being a puzzle exercise it's also like a strength training <laughs> thing and in, in some sense emotionally <laughs> you know i and and it's interesting how soothing it is to some of us like when we started the show a, a listener posted um a meme i guess you'd call it which was it was like a cartoon of I think it was someone lying in bed and there was like an iPod playing or an iPhone playing a true crime podcast and you could see the speech bubble was and then they found her body in the woods and she had been abducted and all this sort of stuff. And the person listening is just sleeping peacefully. And it says, for some reason, this puts me right. It, it makes me relax because but the relaxation sense comes from the fact of we're doing something about the darkness. We're actually going to engage with it. We're not going to pretend it's not there. We're going to face it and we're going to try to fix it. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Christopher and Eric is a production of the TDPS Network, which mm. you can support by visiting thedinnerpartyshow.com or www.tdps.tv. And by clicking on the gold Amazon box at the bottom right-hand corner of the home page, you'll ensure a portion of your subsequent Amazon purchases supports podcasts like this one. The same is true if you use any of the buy links on our website as well. And thedinnerpartyshow.com and tdps.tv is also where you can find all the episodes of our other podcast, The Dinner Party Show, which is full of celebrity interviews and sketch comedy that's gotten us banned in 20 states. That's not true. A man can dream. All right. Well, let's dream of everyone supporting our website. That way we can avoid putting an ad in this spot for a crowdsourced skin surgery hour. So... Now we're going to do what I actually sort of proposed we should do for this episode. <laughs> well, Although I'm going to own it and say I was maybe a little bit too vague in my description. You did propose, and I just yeah. didn't. I wasn't paying good enough. It, it, it's pretty well written out. The well, episodes no, that the haunt episode us. haunt us. Yeah, you would probably wouldn't say that about you know our favorite episode of the show, and but you didn't. It doesn't say True Crime TV Club. So anyway, but I think honestly, when we talked about it, you said the one that is the most that that sticks with you the most or that. But the reason I was vague about it is because I didn't want to start throwing out examples because I didn't want to spoil. I wanted us to surprise each other. So we're pretty surprised. Surprise me. You know, like (laughs) I'm ready, Christopher. What is your surprise? What was it you were trying not to spoil? What which one of the true crime TV club episodes haunts you the most it's episode three of our podcast and i think it was the first time we did true crime tv club and it's southwest of salem we talked about a documentary this was when we started doing actual documentaries we did a couple movies that were movie length and it was an incredibly disturbing story of several lesbian women in the 90s who were falsely accused of child molestation and they were sent away to prison for many years And it was an example of something that has come up a few times over the course of True Crime TV Club, which is the satanic panic. It also played a role to a much lesser extent in the murder of Mark Kilroy. I would say it it, uh, disrupted the course of justice to a much lesser extent in the murder of Mark Kilroy. It was still the satanic panic was still. I I have come to see it, and this is the reason our discussion of Southwest of Salem stays with me, as a cracked prism through which law enforcement at the time was tending to view things in a way that it shouldn't. And I think it had no—it was affecting uh, investigative efficacy. It allowed people in that instance to believe— it's essentially, and I remember living through this time and being terrified by it because lives were being destroyed on the basis of the most wild accusations, many of them from children, many of which were later revealed to have been ceaselessly coached out of those children. But what drove the panic was a widespread conspiracy theory that there were scores and scores of Satanists worshiping the devil and worshiping the devil through horrific, brutal acts of violence and murder all throughout the country. And if you bought into that belief, 
it began which was to really, really completely untrue right like it was just untrue it just just did not happen it was completely untrue and there was not later evidence found for these rafts yeah. of murders because at the time you were hearing about it from a child who would appear on television and you would think even Oprah Winfrey uh, did her own episode of this on the Satanic Panic, and she turned to the camera after the child she was interviewing told this absolute absurd and gruesome story of, of ritual sacrifice, having witnessed it, a story for which there was no shred of physical or forensic evidence of any kind. She said, we don't want to believe these things are really happening, but they are. They weren't happening. They weren't happening. And when we talked about Southwest of Salem, it really brought it home, and it really brought home how the course of justice for those women had been subverted Delayed, I should say, because they were eventually, spoiler alert, exonerated, which is why the documentary is not just completely devastating. But it made me wonder, is every generation doomed to have their version of the satanic panic? And are people in the future going to look back with more perspective and clearer eyes on us and see? You know, I think right now we are revisiting... um, racially biased verdicts of past of the past in that way i think we're i have not seen the ava duvernay miniseries on the central park case on netflix but it had the ultimate effect of destroying linda fairstein's career she was the prosecuting attorney at the time and in the light of history many have decided on the basis of a lot of research that the decisions made around how to prosecute those young men were incredibly racially biased and so maybe it's happening in that respect but in terms of the satanic panic it always it has left me with this sense um every time we talk about a case or we're watching something that we're going to talk about and the detective says i just knew or i was following a hunch or it was my instinct i get really really nervous because what I know now is that those hunches, those instincts, and those judgments can be severely warped and biased, not just by personal belief, but by, I don't know what to call it, a zombie idea like the Satanic Panic, an idea for which there's not a lot of proof, but a lot of people choose to believe it. Conspiracy theory is as close as I can get to it. But that's the, that's the one that I have just not been able to get out of my head and for those reasons. Although one... One thing one hopes that the reason that we're hearing about those cases is because they are the exceptions rather mm-hmm. than the rules. Uh, one hopes. I, I mean, I, yeah. I don't participate in it. I the 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 the, the aspect of most of, of many of those cases, and certainly of of the law enforcement thing that that puts me off more than the the investigation is um, prosecutorial zealotry. You know, where mm-hmm. they are just desperate there seems to be this win at any cost notion of prosecution i just i just don't see what those two things have to do with each other like mm-hmm. we want there we want it to be the person who did it we don't just want to convict somebody for this crime we want to be certain we are convicting the right person for this crime and there is a an attitude of, you know, I'm going to bury this um, piece of evidence in a box full of information um, mm-hmm. in, as a disclosure so that I can pre- not present it at, at trial and not have it, you know, screw up my... Pre- like, that kind of notion of participating in prosecution in an effort to win as opposed to in an effort to make sure that justice is served... Mm-hmm. That disturbs mm-hmm. me more than the investigations itself, because mm-hmm. there's an enormous amount of latitude for prosecutors. And just simply getting a conviction shouldn't even be on the list, mm-hmm. in my mm-hmm. estimation. If, if you aren't certain that, if you don't have certain proof that somebody committed a crime, then that should be the end of that. You know, I'm not even sure there should be any prosecution, let alone that you should try and manage, you know, the truth itself so that you can win and ensure a conviction uh, without without keeping an eye on whether or not the person is beyond a shadow of a doubt. It should be as clear to the prosecutor that it's beyond the shadow of a doubt as it is to the jury. I agree. And how much of a role do you think elections play 
in that process. Like, I know there's an advantage to having electable district attorneys. You can vote them out if you think they're idiots. And in, and we talk about that in our coverage of the thing about Pam, where we there's just a terrible prosecutor who behaved abominably, and the election system was ultimately what dealt with it. But that said, that desire to win, because I totally see it and I totally agree with you, how much of that is about the desire to win the next election? How much of that goes into the selection of which cases to prosecute? The ones I'm under pressure about, the ones that are getting a lot of media attention, you know? Yeah. No, I think it's I think it is it is very much driven by politics and I think it is very much driven by you will forgive me for saying this because I am a true crime TV um, junkie just like yourself, but for the inclusion of cameras in courtrooms, I, I mm-hmm. don't think there ought to be any. I don't think mm-hmm. any bit of justice is served by covering it as a form of entertainment. It, to me, it's, it, is, it is not largely different than... Um, throwing Christians to the lions, you know, to see mm-hmm. who survives, like, or gladiatorial um, combat. Like, I, I just, I, I think that the, that it should happen completely removed from public view and without, you know, uh, without prejudice towards ratings or the way you look. Marsha, our friend Marsha being absolutely dragged over the coals because of her hair, in the well, and that would be, trial. Let me just cut in and say that's Marsha Clark, the uh, prosecuting attorney of O.J. Simpson in the 90s. Yes. But and remember what she said when you said this to her on an episode of the Dinner Party show? Yeah, she, she was actually in favor. She actually thought it was it was a service to keep the um, the cameras. But for in the one for one reason, for one reason, she said if the cameras hadn't been in the courtroom, you wouldn't have been able to understand how bad that verdict was. Yeah, that was that was why she thought it was, you know, like, I, and I, it you is know, true. I, yeah. So, I, you know, yeah, I think that is um, fascinating. But I think that. Yeah, it keeps people me, honest. You know, sunlight is the best disinfectant. So I, you can certainly make the case the other way. It is it's a tough call to make. I, I just I I I don't want ratings. I don't want popularity contests of any kind to be involved in the application of justice. It just, that's really problematic. Yeah. And, but I, I think that I've often thought when I watch these things, particularly when it's, when it's a story in which the prosecutor will not bring it to trial. Um, yeah. Or there's some is, should this be one person's decision? Should this be, because it gets, I mean, you want to talk about someone who's worried about popularity and ratings. When you bring that down to the level of one lone individual, those concerns are going to be at peak. But if you're talking about a panel in the DA's office of five people of varying points of view. And I think there is more of that than we probably realize. I think that there is, you know, uh, there is more participation from more people than than one would think there there was that moment of trying on the glove in the simpson trial where everyone involved said oh no don't do that do not Mm -hmm. do it and then he did it Mm -hmm. so he ultimately made a decision on his own but but consulted with everyone else and everyone said yeah no no don't do that so once you're out there you know you can you end up doing or saying whatever you want to do. But, but I think that, that I think that there are more people involved in the decision of the direction, certainly under the direction of the, the DA him or herself. Right. And I think the next, the next step, which is one that distresses me more in that process is the jury. Right. Because I think when we talk about things like Southwest of Salem, when we talk about the satanic panic, we're talking about things that have pervaded the minds of the public and that could potentially taint the jury pool. And I, I, I like to say, and it may sound a little glib, after the amount of true crime stories we've talked about, I would never, if I was falsely accused of something and being prosecuted for something and I knew I was innocent, I don't think I could ever put my fate in the hands of a jury because I have seen them make decisions. I always go back to this example. I believe Scott Peterson is guilty of the yes. murder of his wife. I believe they didn't prove it. And At when all. the jury comes out bragging about how his decision to order pay-per-view porn 
was a factor in their decision to send a man away to life for prison, I bristle and I get disturbed on behalf of sexual minorities who have been judged for their behavior. I get uh, that to me is a type of thinking that says, if you do something I find distasteful, it means you are guilty of something morally abominable. And that type of thinking goes to, if you are a lesbian already, I can believe you are a Satan-worshipping abuser of children. Right. And Absolutely. that's bigotry. That's prejudice. And I think that when we talk about instincts, guts, and hunches, I want a higher bar than that. But I'm going to also add, we have talked enough about whole schools of forensic science later being thrown out and being complete witchcraft and hokum that I can't automatically say, well, it should only be the evidence, you know, because we, anyway. But that episode is the one that haunts me. Episode three. I will say I will say this about that in terms of juries. I think that the solution to that issue um, in large measure is to completely revamp the 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 way that we treat people who are jurors. I think talk about what that would look like the most unappreciated, the most completely um, uh, undervalued aspect of the um of the, the 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 judicial process and and here's how I would fix it I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. I think that jurors are subjected to, I think people go out of their way not to be on a jury because it's horrible to be on a jury. Mm-hmm. It is an unbelievably terrible experience. You, people are not, uh, are, are trying to get out of it so that you wind up with 12 people who couldn't get out of it. Mm-hmm deciding mm-hmm. the trial or who have some sort of vested interest in wanting to judge somebody else, you don't wind up with the best possible people on the jury. I, I, nothing against jurors. God bless them for their service. But the jury service that I have done, I was treated worse than the criminals. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we have to talk about something. Go outside and sit on the floor, the hard terrazzo floor in the hallway until we're ready for you. Oh, lunch? Mm-hmm. Well, you're on your own. Snacks, breaks, all of that? Fuck you. The jury room? Piece of shit. Hell hole. I mean, <laughs> everything about the experience is a nightmare. There should mm-hmm. be a sweet where the jury um, is is in uh, it is kept during the course of a trial. There should be donuts and sandwiches and coffee samovars and hot tea and concierge service. It should be delightful. They should pick you up at home and drive you to the um, to the courthouse or put you up in luxury accommodations if you're going to be sequestered. It should be a delight to be a juror and you should be handsomely compensated for it as opposed to paid, I don't know, less than minimum wage unless your employer continues to pay you, in which case, fine, then you're getting a regular salary anyway. But do you know what I mean? It shouldn't oh, be. But add, this- add in the sequestering effect. If you're sequestered, the Simpson trial was sequestered for something like almost a year. I mean, they, they later said there were some liberties in this episode of The People versus O.J. Simpson, and it was a show with some limitations. But they that there was an episode that chronicled all of them going mad because they hadn't seen their families in months. Now, that doesn't happen on every trial, but in a lot of criminal trials where there's been a lot of media coverage, they need to isolate you. And I that just makes everything you're describing even worse. You know, right. so it, I, I it yeah. needs to be a better experience to be a juror so that people aren't trying to get out of it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. because if you if your primary objective in going to your jury call is to get out of the experience, then 
what does that say of the quality of the people that they wind up with? Oh, you weren't well, I, clever I, enough to get out of jury duty? That's a terrible bar to set for the people who are going to be deciding the judgment. No other group, including the prisoners, are treated as poorly as the jurors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm more intrigued, I, not to dismiss all of that, because I think all of that is true, but I'm really intrigued with the people who want to be on a jury, right? I, I and, and they are scarier to me. They are the ones that I think are more likely to be acting out of personal animus and personal biases because they want to send somebody away. Or feeling some need for power or wanting to be able to hold it over somebody else. That's that's an even less desirable aspect of having somebody on. You know, it just, I, anyway, so that's my thought about that. I really do okay. think that... That that aspect of, of the the others is all of the other is much thornier stuff. But the juror thing, I think you could fix it if you mm-hmm. were willing to fund taking decent care of people for the mm-hmm. time that you're asking of them um, rather than treating them like dirt. Yes, but it's time, Eric, to hear about the episode that haunts you. Well, I will tell you, Christopher. Um, you know, obviously, I, I don't know if I was going to pick just a favorite episode, it would have to be, um, the thing about Pam. I just, that's, mm-hmm. that was such a, that was such a, uh, that, that show is amazing. And it was, it was so many twists and turns and whoa, it whoa, was meta. Whoa, it became, whoa, a, whoa, it became whoa, about whoa. the show became a part of the crime itself when she right. pretended to be a producer. Uh, that was, a, so, but, but it doesn't haunt me. It was just my mm-hmm. favorite. Um, you know, I certainly, I was haunted by um, episode 12, the darkest night. That was because of the injustice mm. of it. That woman killed for no good reason at the behest of that child. And it was just a, it was a horrible, um, uh, it was a horrible situation, and we should possibly do King Cobra as one of our true crime TV mm-hmm. club re- reportages because it's the same kind of um, of story of somebody convincing somebody else to do a murder and killing somebody who was ultimately, you know, an innocent bystander. That was a terrible one. That one certainly sticks with me, and South by Southwest certainly makes my list because of the mm-hmm. the injustice of that one. That one was... Um, that was just such a hideous, you know, to see those poor women spend all of that time, have their lives literally destroyed by that, that vengeful man, that vengeful ex-husband who mm-hmm. got those kids, who coached those kids to lie about them and never really faced any consequences for his behavior. And, you know, there, there was no crime committed. That was the really, I, the great irony of that true crime TV club. The only crime was that they were... Um, imprisoned for something that not only they hadn't do, nobody had done. It didn't mm-hmm. happen. It that didn't was happen. a fantasy. So, so that was really that kind of injustice is really that that's haunting. But I, I will tell you the one that, the one that really haunts me the most, for reasons that didn't weren't even actually an aspect of the show itself, was uh, Bayou Blue. Oh wow! Yeah. The, yeah. the notion that there could be a serial killer who killed 23, at least, people um, and was caught. And, you know, like it wasn't like it's not clear. It's not some unsolved crime that we're mm-hmm. not sure is being committed. Um, and, you know, like zero coverage. No New York Times front page. No, you know, like it was... The first time I had ever heard of this crime was when we saw this this mm-hmm. film, this documentary. And, you know, it was like the ultimate, like, this is how marginalized gay people, particularly gay men, really mm-hmm. are in our culture. 23 men murdered and, you know, no, nobody mentioned it. It didn't come up. It didn't make the evening news. It didn't like, even for somebody as high interest as me, somebody who would be genuinely concerned about such a crime, never really, you know, just no, no, never came up. That, that really haunts me that and there could that, be that kind of level. Like how many other serial killers out there have killed, you know, 40 gay kids are gay men out there are not being reported on at all because, you know, it's just gay people. 
Yeah, and it was low-income, struggling um, sex workers for a lot of the part. Yeah. People that I mean, it we was, tend to view as disposable, who are not disposable, and they yeah. should no, be No, they're still people. Way. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, I totally see that. And I think that the more we look at these cases, the more we do see the truth to those crime show tropes, that the victims who get the attention are the ones with the with power, wealth, and influence. You know, we have, I think, some fantastic notions about what local law enforcement should be capable of given their resources and their workloads, okay? I think, and I, so I want to, I think it's important to be balanced to some extent right. in that regard. But the Bayou Blue story is not necessarily one of investigative incompetence at the local level. They did a good no. job of investigating those yeah, cases. they did. It's that when they called the New York Times, which is one of the moments I think you're referring to, to try to get them to cover it, they said, this is a local story. He's the most prolific serial killer in history at that point. I think he still might be. How can you He's determine right that there. that is a local story? Now, also the factor was all the stories they wanted out of um, South Louisiana at that time were Katrina and Rita related. That's all they were covering because hurricanes, Katrina and Rita had happened fairly close together. But right. that to me sounds like an excuse. Like we're only your part of the world is only good for us for right now for hurricane porn. And we're not interested in this serial killer. I can, I can totally see that. You know? I, it gets, you know, like it gets really like the green river killer killed marginalized sex worker as, as well. And I heard mm -hmm. about that, you know, yeah. the fact that I had never heard this story before it, it is that it certainly the killings themselves haunting and Oh my God, you know, like terrible. What a horrific situation. And, and mostly men, the we, thing should, that, we shouldn't, Mostly men of color, too. I'm sorry. I thought we should add that in. There were also the victims were mostly black. Yes. And yeah. and that was certainly a, a component of it. But, you know, that like it was. But even then, like when the black children were being murdered in Atlanta by a serial killer, that was reported as well. You know, mm -hmm. I saw that on the national news. The thing that was disturbing wasn't the crime itself though it was plenty disturbing. The thing that was disturbing to me was the complete absence of coverage of the yeah, crime itself. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally yeah. That's the that's yeah. the, the part that stuck with me that just I, I I've never really gotten past that. I was like because the thing that keeps occurring to me is like, what are we missing? What what crimes are not being covered because, you know, just gay people. I, I'm yeah. certain there's plenty of just people of color and just, you know, prostitutes or just sex workers or whatever. There's lots of that. But the the what was it? The BBK killer and the Green River killer and the BTK all of those people. Killer, yeah, yeah th those people got ultimately got covered. But I think this one, a, even in the conviction, there was no coverage. And I think there's a we have uh, maybe it's changing now, but I think it's part of this. And I think it really it like meets up with homophobia and becomes supercharged. A difficulty with viewing men as victims of violent crime, a difficulty with talking about that and accepting that. I don't think gay people have that difficulty. I don't think we do because we've dealt with it. Gay men have so often been victims of violent crime. But I've always thought that the, the first Jackson verdict where he w got off. And they released the doves outside the courthouse. He was still alive, obviously. This was many years ago. I've always thought that that case's proximity to the Columbine shooting had a cultural and psychic effect on that jury. That if that had been a, a young woman in there making those claims against Michael Jackson, it would have been different. But because it was a man and we were having difficulty seeing young men in particular as anything more than aggressors in that age, because we had really been culturally scarred by that school shooting by those two men. I know that qualifies as a hot take, but and I think that plays into that. And I think that leads to the erasure and the invisibility of a lot of crimes against gay men in general. Sure. We don't and I these men were raped and murdered. So there yeah. was there was the, re the reluctance of that. Certainly the Menendez brothers, if they had been the Menendez sister, there was, would be a statue of them in Beverly Hills. They wouldn't be in prison. Mm -hmm. They would be they would be heroes for standing up and defending themselves against the rape and um, abuse that they suffered for years and years at the hands of that monster. But instead, you know, they're going to die in prison because 
you know, I, I guess that it's that's okay if it's a boy. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. That is one of those miscarriages of justice that 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 puts me off enormously. I, I will even say I had the experience of writing. Um, I wrote a script about sexual violence against men years ago and a manager presented it, you know, shopped it around some and the people at HBO of all the places said that it was too scary for them, that they mm-hmm. couldn't do it, but they would want to see it when we got it produced. We should let them mm-hmm. know. Like if HBO thinks sexual violence against men is, is an untouchable topic, like, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, where yeah, can and if you any of us are go? treating sexual violence against men as any worse or better than sexual violence against women, sexual violence is the problem. I mean, that's right. the thing you want, and it's when there's a there's a, a a different cultural reaction to it. It just it speaks of a kind of homophobia that the absolute worst thing that could happen to a man is that he's raped, but to a woman, it's sort of she made the wrong choices and went home with the wrong guy. No, 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 no. Um, it's still violence. It's still a violent assault. It is an act of violence. It is not an act of sex. That's the thing that separates rape from, you know, other crimes. Right. I think also the thing that we talk about a lot here, and I think it's tied into this topic, is the erasure of any possibility that a a victim's behavior, th- that they could be gay, basically. You know, like that... That we'll see the coverage of stories like, or that they could be in pursuit of a gay sexual experience, you know, and that comes out of the blindness and the narrowness of the investigators that they never assume that's a possibility. I remember there was a wonderful Lee Child thriller that came out, I don't know, about 18 years ago now, and I can't remember the name, so I won't spoil it for you, but the major twist of the novel plays to whatever your attitudes are around homosexuality or or however much willing you are to admit it is prevalent in the world because it's set up where like the two men are murdered together in the hotel room and you never assume that they were there together to have sex until it's revealed and he got me gay me out proud at that end you know he um he got me and the twist but he was playing to our assumptions, basically. And I think we yeah. see that a lot in cases where they couldn't possibly make an assumption that um, these two guys wanted to be together or he was going down that dark alley to have sex with somebody. And it 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 does skew their ability to properly investigate the case. I mean, we all have the obvious, glaringly obvious example of the Andrew Cunanan murder spree where the complete inability of law enforcement to work effectively with the gay community hindered their ability to capture him, all that sort of stuff. But it comes up again and again, and I think I always have this insecurity about it because I I talk about we talk about it and we have conversations on the podcast, and I always think people are listening going, oh, they just want everyone to be gay, you know, and that's not what it's about, and nobody's posted a comment like that. But I've heard people talk like that in the past, like <laughs> oh it's just God. wishful thinking. But it's it's more about preserving what you can see. People trying to sweep out of the edge of the frame because they've decided it's it's unsightly or morally you know reprehensible or it's just something that's not share of mind there's that you know that old joke that riddle joke whatever it's that the thing where you know the there's the 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 terrible car accident the um um the man and his son are out for a drive and there's a terrible car accident and the man is killed and the son is severely injured and he's rushed in an ambulance to the hospital and um you know, they prep for surgery, for emergency surgery, and the doctor arrives and scrubs in and walks in and says, oh, my God, I can't operate on on um, him. He's my son. And the riddle is, how is that possible? Mm-hmm. And it's possible because it's his mother. But it, the, the, the joke works or the riddle works because you think of a doctor as being a man. Yeah. If right. you don't Absolutely. identify it as a woman, you don't like, well, his father was killed. How could his father, you know, how, well, because the doctor is his mother. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I hope that that is, that one doesn't work anymore. I hope that we've moved to a place where the idea of a doctor being his mother would of course, would be an of course kind of assumption, but that kind of autocorrect in your brain I, I would think in, in investigators in anybody's life, 
I've certainly had the same experience during the Me Too movement of listening to people talk about, of like, I've had aha moments listening to Me Too victims talk about stuff where it's like, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess I can see what you're saying, where it would never have occurred to me because, you know, I am who I am because mm-hmm. I'm a white upper middle class older man. Like, and, and mm-hmm. so things that where I was like, oh, you're right, that really is... Oh, yeah. Now, if he's your mm-hmm. boss, yeah, I can see how that would, you know, but it would never have occurred to me. Right. Prior to it. So getting into somebody else's shoes, I think, is at the essence of being a really good investigator. And I think it's really easy to allow your own experience to color the sort of autocorrect that you insert as you're trying to build the story of the crime in your mind. Mm-hmm. You fill it in with details that you know, are from your own experience of, of life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I could, we could have this conversation for three hours, uh, you know, I, but I, and we do sort of, it's just broken up into various episodes, but we are. Yeah, and I think we talked about it on that episode. It's episode four, Blue Bayou. Yeah, if episode you, four. Bayou Blue. If you haven't, if you haven't heard it before, I would say listen in, but it's the same. It is about that conversation. I was just, it was like getting hit by lightning. I could not believe that this kind of crime could have happened in the, in the world. And I would have no awareness of it at all. Yeah. Until I saw that movie. Well, next week we are back with True Crime TV Club, which Again? was the source of our discussion today, if not technically an episode of True Crime TV Club. Um, this time We're for our back. usual disclaimers, we are um, you are not required or should you be expected to watch the episode of True Crime Television we're going to discuss. It's However, nice, you would, but yeah. If you would like to, next week we are discussing an episode of Dateline entitled Before Daylight. It is season 28 because that's how many seasons Dateline has. Episode oh 27. It aired recently. And I have to say, I'm just going to say not to spoil anything. It is about one of my favorite murder. Yes, I will say my favorite because the podcast has made that term acceptable. My favorite murders ever. It is a case that absolutely intrigues me and has haunted me ever since I first heard about it in 2004. So that's Before wow. Daylight, an episode of Dateline, season 28, episode 27. Until then, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.